Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. This week on Tia Time with Artists, I have international recording artist, educator, multi-instrumentalist, choir director, organizer of festivals, Christiane Karam. Thank you for being on the show today, Christiane. Thank you for having me, Tia. It's so good to see you. <laughs> I was trying to get all of your titles in there. I know. Yes, yeah, impossible. <laughs> it's impossible in one show. But thank you. Yes. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. You do. A lot of hats. Too many. I, you know, every day I ask myself if there's a way around it. And the answer is always no. From me to me, nobody's making me do this. It's, but it's just like having a lot of kids and loving all of them. Everything I do is it's, it's like my babies. And I'm deeply invested in every one of the avenues. And it's just a matter of streamlining and being efficient and realistic in terms of what to focus on when so that everything flourishes. Yes. I do. So you, okay, let's talk about getting to be who you are to some degree here. What was it about music in general? Is it something that's just in your household growing up? Was it something that was just in the environment? Was it something specific or was there a person that really pulled you into saying, I'm going to do that when you were younger? Very good question. If I, my mom says I was, I came home from preschool even singing every day and there was in me and rhythm was very much in me. And my father very much appreciates music, but he's not a musician himself. My mom was a piano, was a classical pianist. Of course, she couldn't pursue it because she had to support her own family and do other things. But there was definitely talent in the family and a disposition towards that. However, uh, a couple of things came into play that that got in the way a little bit. One of one was that culturally, we're, we I come from a place where uh, music was was not for, the, for my family and my, my immediate environment, music was not considered to be a safe course of action, a safe profession. So we were more we were encouraged to pursue medicine and engineering and things mm -hmm. like that. And granted, I was very passionate about medicine, still am. And that was a dream I also had, not just my parents had for me. So I was very torn for a long time. But also we grew up in during the Civil War. It started when I was three. And so that shattered every possibility of pursuing anything except running for our lives for the longest time, which made considering any kinds of arts just an aberration because arts programs were cut from school. We homeschooled because we were confined. We were literally we were at home. We were in between the our apartment and the bomb shelter we, for years on end. And we, can, we, we barely passed from class to class. And there was just so much to consider other than develop your artistic side. It was just not a thing. But well, this is in Beirut, right? Beirut, seven years and in the eighties. And but by the same token, oddly enough, my mom, who could see that I was very 
keen on music. It was something that just I, I revolved towards and it, it was my refuge as a child. So when I was eight, she signed me up for piano lessons. The conservatory was shut down because of the war. There was a small music school nearby where we would be able to get to sometimes and sometimes we wouldn't be able to get to it because of the shelling, the bombings and all that. And she said, why don't we do that? And she said, you never know when you'll need it. I'll never forget that because it was a lifesaver. And I started on that path and I got a diploma in classical music as a teenager. It was my only safe place. And I recall practicing with the piano was in the kind of the living room, which was on the more exposed side. So we couldn't even go to get to our that room in the house very often. So sometimes I couldn't practice because of that. There were all kinds of very surreal Restraints, like constraints, rather. Well, like you were worried about getting hit by yeah, yeah, a bullet or shrapnel or yeah, and we were targeted. I mean, we, you know, we we our our place got destroyed many times. We had to run many times. It's just it's another reality altogether. One one day I will write that book, but but music was very much a kind of my little bubble. I I wrote a lot and I played and I sang. I wrote lyrics to different songs. I wrote poetry. And it was, I read a lot. We were alone a lot just because it was a very isolating time. But I could be alone uh, days on end and read my books and just write and practice and listen to music, memorize songs. I was, Chopin was, Chopin, Frédéric Chopin and David Bowie were my first, my (laughs) first loves. Like I have every song and every beat and every note and everything about their lives engraved in my bones from from age eight or nine. And uh, they were my imaginary friends. I would talk to them. I would. I had my own little world that kept me alive, I believe. And mm. yeah, and so when I went through all kinds, I got a science degree. And I went through all kinds of ups and downs and revolutions of my own until I um, came to terms with the fact that I really needed to leave everything and start over and grant myself a chance to be in a safer place and and give give myself the gift of music and what my heart longed for. I had worked in hospitals. I was in the Red Cross. Now I did a lot of work the last years of the war, helping out. And I was very passionate about it. But then the, the trauma part of it and the PTSD part of it got completely out of hand because uh, wartime is brutal for kids. And yeah, so there was a lot to come back from. And, and then I, at one point I realized music could save lives in, in at least as potent a way. And I, I realized what it had done for me. And from that moment on, I pledged to get the tools I needed to heal so I could then make that, hold that space for others. Okay. You do. <laughs> Thank you. So it's working. Thank you. So I'm, I'm glad to, to see that, <laughs> that you persevered through that. Cause that's, I've never had to live through anything like that. And that's a powerful thing. So to see music work that way. and Yes, it's amazing. I'm very, very, very grateful Just to have not given up. So when you got to the United States through what auspices? How did you end up here? So I studied nutrition and psychology back home in two different universities, and I was digging and I was teaching piano, and I was a crazy young person trying to figure out who I was and never quite landing anywhere until it became clear to me I need to get out of here. And I had a dear friend who we were in a band together and he he got accepted to Berkeley. And the, the year, the following year, my brother got accepted to Stanford and he moved here. So I came to visit my brother and I decided to make a stop and visit Berkeley College of Music. 
and that was in 1997, I believe. And I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to be. And I applied. I got a scholarship. I came. My family was devastated in the sense that they were like, you know, you have the brain to be a surgeon. You want to do music? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it was very sweet because obviously... As they often do, they came. They eventually came around. And when I graduated with my master's degree in 2005 from NEC, my, my parents came to the graduation and they were here like for the last week of classes or something like that. So I had them sit in a couple of classes and graduates level stuff. And I remember one of the classes, my leaving the class and my father looked really preoccupied. And I said, Dad, what's the matter? He was like, music is hard. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it does pick up quite a few brain cells as well. <laughs> so that was very redeeming. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, <laughs> that's fabulous. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I believe we teach our children, teach their parents to each other. So they've been wonderful. They've been very supportive after the, after they get past the first, what's going to happen to our kid phase. Sure. When they saw that I was happy and successful and they were like, you got this. Well, there's what, three of you here then, as far as your siblings go, there's you and your, and two brothers. I have two brothers. One of them is in California. Mm -hmm. He stayed there. And one of them is based in Vienna. He does some fabulous work with the United Nations. Okay. And they're both engineers, software engineers. So very different, but that's the same, actually. So we went through seemingly different paths, but we all connect on very very deep levels in terms of the work that we do. It's very interesting to observe so many years later. It's fascinating how we go through all these twists and turns to end up where we end up. And you're like, how did I get here? Like you had a vision, but you still had to go through like the loop-de-loops and the figure eights. And the, that's, where, that's where the gold is. That's what people say. <laughs> yes. It's never fun when it's actually happening. Exactly. In, in hindsight, we can ornament it a little bit, make it a little more poetic. All right. So you went to Berkeley Mm-hmm. And now you're teaching at Berkeley. Now I'm teaching at Berkeley. It's my 14th year, if you can believe that. I was for- very fortunate that I made a lot of really beautiful relationships at Berkeley as a student. And I was a very distraught 26-year-old when I got here. And right after I got here, 9-11 happened, which mm-hmm. did not help the PTSD. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the minute I got here <clears throat> thinking I'm finally in a safe place and I can start over, and I was like on by the Twin Towers the night before. It was very uh, rattling. And of course, all the the Arab, the anti-Arab hate Mm -hmm. that ensued. And I just felt so helpless and so doomed for a while. And then it dawned on me that I actually could affect change. And I I could, because I was also dealing with a lot of survivor's guilt and a lot of uh, guilt around having left my my, dire circumstances in my country when so many people I loved couldn't leave. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so all of that kind of percolated in me, and I, wa- I had the urge to create something that would help shift the paradigm and the narrative around Arabic culture, that region, which is so often demonized and misconstrued in the media. 
And, and that's where the idea for the festival came. And I started a series of concerts at Berkeley where I would bring in people from different parts of this region, sometimes people in, co- in conflict with each other, and just to showcase how beautifully intertwined the cultures were and how much more there was to glean from all of it than just the conflicts and the, the prejudice. And, and it, it was very successful. It was very moving. We got a, It was very funny now, not funny then. But I did a concert right after 9-11. It was a huge concert and I got a I got an award for it. It was so big and it was so packed and there were people down like down the street waiting to get in. It was so emotional, so beautiful. And it's very funny because the next day I got a letter from Berkeley saying that I was banned from ever producing concerts there again because I'd broken the fire code by having too many people oh. in the room. And it's funny because I became one of the most visit, like prominent producers at Berkeley. <laughs> like I started teaching. I practically live in the performance center because of the all the shows that I produced. So because of that, and I remember at that time it was considered dangerous to have a Middle Eastern show in the big venues. And it was a very kind of tricky time for, for all of that. And uh, the minute I started teaching I I just wanted to implement everything and I got a green light because again I had formed beautiful relationships and people trusted me and knew where I come where my heart was and where I was coming from with all of this. And I founded the the annual Middle Eastern Festival and it became again one of the very visible shows of the school that that brought in students and and created draw and created a lot of good visibility for that region and for those parts of the world for their music, for their culture, for their traditions. I learned so much every year from working with these artists and working with students from all around the world. And it's just endless. It's just exponentially yielding in terms of a process. And so my, and I've started, I've, I've created a lot of curriculum at Berkeley. I've, again, I've, it's just been a blessed journey there just because what I bring to the table is very specific, mm-hmm. um, very much who I am and my different, my lens and my vantage point in terms of, I come from a mix of cultures as well, which is unique. And I've been very lucky that in, in that I've had a lot of trust from the institution in terms of developing that. And it's it's a win, every, you know, it's a win-win. Everybody got something beautiful out of it. I get to be very fulfilled and I, I give a million percent. Everybody knows that when I commit to something, I'm, it's going to be amazing because not because I'm just going to do what it takes. I'm going to stop until it's amazing. And that serves them, and they're they're very happy because they're getting something beautiful that they can show for. And a lot of students call these pockets that I create their home, away from home, because they're warm and safe spaces where it's not strictly academic. And it, it's again, it's a safe space for them to find who they are, to explore their roots, to make some decisions about who they are and where they want to go. And it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful age because at the college age, they're still moldable and there's a lot they can absorb and there's a lot they can rectify in their own trajectories. And by the same token, it's a huge responsibility as a mentor to really stay out of the way and really just hold space for them to figure out what's good for them. And I'm very committed to that. And I'm proud that I that I hold myself accountable to that very much. And that's more than I can say for a lot of people. In, in academia, it's very easy to get in your head and get rigid about certain things and not necessarily genuinely have the student's best interest at heart. And sometimes it's challenging. And I'm very grateful that I work at a school and in a department that it's like-minded people where, you know, and as artists, we're very compassionate and we're very empathetic. And so more right. often than not, this will be the, this will be the, the default 
Okay. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Who holds space for you? A very good question. I have a beautiful support team. I'm very, when I was 19, I found, I, I, I found a therapist that literally, I want to say, saved my life. And because I, I started on that path very early on, and because I was in a place that was difficult, that it was an all or nothing situation for me. I, there was no room for being complacent about getting help. Okay. And so that taught me that that made me endlessly grateful to the possibility of having a support network. And so since then, it hasn't necessarily been in the form of therapy, but I've always made sure that I had people I could check in with and people that would hold me accountable mm-hmm. when I got my own head or when things were unraveling and getting a little overwhelming for me. So I have a team of people that I call upon as needed so that I'm, I don't let the overwhelm get in the way of my work, okay. my integrity in my work. Because outside of Berkeley and outside of my students, I also have coaching practice where I help a lot of people just claim their voice in the world and, and claim, reclaim parts of their themselves after very you know, traumatic experiences and things like that. And it's very demanding work. So you can't be, you can't be foggy about it and you can't be blinded by your own triggers or your own pain around certain things. And Mm -hmm. so it's very important that I, so I'm, I'm very regimented about staying clear and getting the support I need in that way. I also have friends, lifelong friends and, and, and very trusted people that are there for me when I need them. And of course me, for them as well. But again, life taught me very early on that that if you seek it, you will find your tribe. Okay. Um, but life also taught me that, that trust is earned. Yeah. And so I have had my share of experiences where I over-trusted or I was over-vulnerable a little too soon or it wasn't reciprocated. We all It's all trial and error for all of us. And sometimes... We're all we we've all experienced this where we know a person for many years, but then something happens and we we understand like more layers reveal themselves to us, and then that creates a shift in the relationship. So of course everything is constantly in motion, and it's a, a real time processing situation. But I I feel like my again I, I'm a big time loner. I've, I have a very solitary soul, so I'm okay. I'm very strong alone, and my work is my friend also Mm -hmm. creating and reading and writing and making music and researching and and connecting with people through my workshops is is my home really it's like it's because when i'm able to create these safe spaces and hold space for people that kind of just comes back to me it's very interesting that makes me whole and that makes me need less Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it works itself out where just by giving, I receive. Very reciprocal kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just about just daring to create that space and daring to give and daring to play full out and daring to be there and seeing what happens. And there's my reward because I could see the breakthroughs and and I'm with them in it, whether with my students or in my workshops or, or on stage. And that's more often than not, that's enough. That's 
that's home. That's good. And then the rest is there. I feel very supported. I feel like I've given a lot of myself to a lot of people. And I feel like that too comes back to me in the most unexpected ways, exactly at the right time and at the right place. Okay. And so I just, I have learned to trust the, the ways of the universe. And I've, I've learned that my job is to be aware and generous. Mm. And true to myself and that the rest will just fall into place and that sometimes when it falls into place it's very much when it needs to and not when I thought it needed to <laughs> that's, that's sometimes difficult a couple of those things right now and uh, it's taking everything I got to just stay focused and, and stay on course and just trust, mm-hmm. just trust. and I tell myself and my, my clients my students all the time we can't trust only when it's easy. We can't trust us when it everything's going our way and we're like, yeah, everything happens for a reason. I'm just going to let it go and trust. Letting go and trusting when nothing around you is giving you any indication that it's even reasonable for you to let go and trust is the test. Oh, yeah. And we seem to have a lot of those. <laughs> yes. Right now, yes, on a collective level, everything's accelerating. So, yes. As far as your daily life, then, you're, how much of, if you're going to break it down into like percentages, like how much time do you spend with your students and your clients and your Ooh. workshops? And how much time do you spend with yourself? Yeah. I, do you want pre-COVID, during COVID, or just shift the things quite a bit? This year, I found myself spending a lot more time with myself, which was treacherous at times because I live alone, and sometimes it got to be a little bit much under the circumstances. But it was, for the most part, really wonderful. Normally, so again, this is a very good question because I was actually just reflecting on that this morning. We're at the brink of reopening and some kind of a post-COVID world, which in some respects will resemble pre-COVID, but not quite exactly in the same way. And we're all creating that as we go. So nobody knows exactly what anything's going to look like. So pre-COVID, I was stretched in all kinds of directions. I was doing a lot. Every single thing I was doing was really fulfilling and was very much my doing. In other words, I wasn't doing anything I did not want to do. I'm very proud of that, that I was resilient and stubborn enough to create a life that worked for me in terms of really having the incredible luxury and blessing of waking up every day and like throwing myself in my work because I wanted to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So I wasn't doing anything that I did not want to do. I was just doing too much of too many things. And so there was no downtime. The semester breaks were used for touring. Anytime I could fit family time, I had to fit into family time, which, as we know, is also demanding. Mm -hmm. And then whenever I could, I had to also write and reflect and create. And then I also had to take care of my body and take care of my mind. And it felt very, very fulfilling and very exhausting. Not draining. I was not, I was happy. I was joyous, but I was tired. It was too much. And so before COVID, I was already contemplating having the courage just to, to slow down in some respect at some point in some way. <laughs> and it's funny, when COVID hit, I was like, okay, universe, you didn't have to go that big. 
<laughs> we could have like kept it between us and worked something out. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> wow! Like you know, I was never gonna be able to say no to touring in the summer, and now I don't have to. I can just stay home and write. So, but of course, getting aside, it it was. It was very difficult and heartbreaking in many ways, but also it was good for me to slow. It was something I want. I was leaning towards anyway. And now that we're like we're working, is coming back fully in person in September. I'm working on a record that it hopefully will come out in the fall, and we're already looking at booking dates and things are moving. There's talk of some mini surges and like little lockdowns, and it's a wobbly year ahead. But for the most part, we're looking at things picking back up. And it's funny. I was just talking to a colleague this morning about that. There's this all this excitement about things opening back up, and at last, and we're so happy, and it's just so exciting. And I, and I'm finding out that other people too are actually feeling very anxious about it because mm-hmm. it feels like we're on the verge of being sucked into another cyclone. Yeah. And the pressure of oh my god, now I have to keep up, and I feel very intentional about not letting that happen, and just being very determined about using what I learned this year and applying it and and keeping it at the forefront as we move into this whole new fast-paced, whatever it's going to be, faster-paced than we've been for sure. And so it's going to be interesting to reconcile those things and while staying grounded and while staying visible, Mm -hmm. it's such a difficult time to catch anybody's attention with anything that we're doing but how do we do that how do we not be a slave to that and how how do we not be completely invisible and how do we keep our integrity and just trust that our work will be heard as long as we do it but then also it could very well be that it won't if you don't do everything you need to do on the back end to make sure that it is yes so it's a lot. It is. It's a lot. It's a shift. And I've spoken to many people about this on the show is that it's a mental shift from the physical into the digital world. Yep. And a lot of this stuff would have taken a lot longer had COVID not happened. Yeah. yeah like, a, like a decade, like a good decade. Yeah, it would have been at least a decade. So yeah. it, basically we moved ahead a whole decade in a year. That, mm-hmm. And and this podcast is proof of that for me, like how fast I put this thing together because the technology didn't exist even five years ago for me yep. to do this. Uh, and I've wanted to do a show since probably 1995. Crazy. I, had a, I had a radio show for a minute, but they didn't allow me to speak much. They just had, I had to pre-program all of my tracks and then I would say a little bit and that would be it. And I said, and that was how radio was going at that point. That if you were going to do that kind of work, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you didn't get to say anything. You didn't get to speak. You didn't even get to choose the music you were putting on. They pre-programmed it all. And I said, someday I'm going to have my own show. <laughs> and I do. There you are. <laughs> no, no. Well, this thing kicked us all in the butt. And we all ended up having to like just show up and show up and just, there was no more we'll see Mm -hmm. And this is something I told my students the whole year through. Some of them were going through very traumatic things. It was a hard year. 
it was a really rough year, but I, I just kept encouraging them and myself to not just collapse into a space of let's see after this is over. And I invited them and myself to be active participants in creating what post-COVID was going to look like and what we could do with this time, what we could learn, what we could spend our time doing while taking into account and holding space for all the trauma and the grief. And because a lot of people reverted to, oh, you should learn a new language and you should do this. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, in theory, it all sounds great. But what about all the unraveling that's happening that was very real for so many of us? And it's my whole claim to fame is to say, make art. And that's what we do. So that's why this podcast is about artists talking to artists, because it's about make your art. Go ahead, make your art, make your it. Art. No matter what happens, you're going to do it anyway. So go do it. And it's okay. We see you. I see you. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's also, what else is there that's better than just making this place a little bit more beautiful than how you found it? I think this is what keeps me going. It's if I can create a little bit of beauty, even in the most harshest of realities, if I can create something that's comforting and soothing and pleasing, just that can alleviate some of that heaviness, I feel like I my being here for a little bit would have served the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I that's I, I think if I think when I think of my purpose, it's just to have comforted and brought a little bit of beauty whenever and wherever possible. That's enough for me. Know that you've done it. Thank you, Tia. It means a lot. <laughs> yeah, seriously, because it's. You've done it and you've done it over and over again. Thank you. It's what I do. It's what right. I do. And every day, it's a good day if I was able to do that a tiny little bit for even one person. You're working on a new CD right now, right? I am. I am. It's very exciting. It's something we've been working on for a couple of years. And we were very brave and recorded during during COVID in September in New York. It was a very intense, very raw session. It was a couple of weeks after the Beirut explosion. Mm. I'm heard you, you sure you heard about it. And yeah. You know, our home was like this very damaged. The whole neighborhood was destroyed. It was right where the epicenter was our neighborhood. It's just, it was a mess. And I felt literally gutted for over a month. So having to put together a record and organize and produce and write new music in that space was just, plus having to deal with the guidelines and traveling musicians and the responsibility of them maybe getting sick or maybe getting stuck and not being able to make it to the studio. It was just surreal. The, and when we all met up, we hadn't, none of us had played a single gig in six months. So the energy was very special. And I think we captured something very beautiful. It, it's in post-production right now. We're mixing and I'm exploring some avenues for the release. And it's going to be dedicated to Beirut and to its people. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, and again, there's a lot of stuff around that. And there's a lot of uncertainty on so many levels, of course, for all of us. But what keeps me going is just the meaning of it, the beauty of it, and just staying true to that and just putting in the hours, even when it feels pointless or overwhelming or uncertain. It's just yeah. showing up for it every day, you know? Now, on this album, is all original music or is it some uh, traditional music or a combination? Well, it's a lot of my own compositions okay. and a couple of compositions from uh, dear friends I've collaborated with in the past and also some kind of recomposed and rearranged traditional music. 
that songs that were just part of my path and that hold special meaning to me. And I think there are like something like five languages on the record. It's all my languages. How many languages? So you've got what? You've got English? You've got yeah, yeah, but English is not my first language. So my first language theoretically is Arabic because I come from Lebanon. However, so my mother is Armenian and she her languages coming into the picture were English and Armenian. My father comes from a different background. He's Lebanese and his languages were Arabic and French, but with English, of course, because it's a common third language in Lebanon. And so when my parents met, they spoke English because that was the language that was most familiar to both of them. My mom was, she speaks Arabic, but it's not her, she's not very comfortable speaking that language. So my parents spoke English at, at the house. They had both studied German in college. So there was a little bit of that, but not, nothing that ever made its way to my system for some reason. I spoke Armenian with my mom mm-hmm. um, and we went to a French school. So, <laughs> so by the time I was three, I was literally fluent in four languages. Okay. And, and that stayed with me for a long time. Then I started dabbling. Languages are like instruments. The minute you play more than one, your yeah. brain is wired to learn the others faster mm-hmm. because a lot of the same principles apply. You're just more prone to grasping them. Sure, sure. Especially when you know different languages from different realms of language. Mm-hmm. So I, I studied a lot of different, I studied a little Spanish, a little Italian, a little Turkish, a little this, a little that, because I was just very, very, the Portuguese, I was very passionate about how they all connected. And then I fell in love when I was, um, a journey exploring my roots. I traveled a lot in the Middle East and the Balkans, and I, I went on a quest of sorts to understand what I came from, what the conflicts were in the region. Because on my mother's side, I come from genocide, and, and that also informed the narrative of the family and in the ways that were very heavy sometimes. It's mm-hmm. a lot of history to carry on one's shoulder. I had to go back in there, and I went to Armenia. I went to Turkey. I, I just had to go and untangle it for myself. Hmm. And and while on that quest, I fell in love with just Bulgaria and Bulgarian music and Bulgarian language. So I, I studied some Bulgarian language and the music there. And that's how I, I started my own Balkan choir. And which is amazing. I've heard thank them. You, thank you. It's a, it's my little it's my little baby. It's a, it's very special. It's a very special project. I'm very proud of it because I got a lot of backlash when I started because people were like, "You're Armenian, Lebanese. You're not even Balkan. Who are you to do this?" And to me, it was very heartwarming for me when one of the one of my greatest mentors there actually said in an interview that I must have been Bulgarian in a past life <laughs> because I it's like in me and nobody knows why. Mm. And and then at some point they branded me a culture ambassador for Bulgarian culture in Bulgaria, which was beautiful because I put so much heart and hard work into this. And I'm so strict and particular about how we go about every single detail of transmitting this culture and bringing this culture to the world that if it's it was so redeeming to be recognized there in that way. And and yeah, so Bulgarian is also on the record. It's one of it's just it's part of who I am. It will always be.
But yeah, so the story of this record is just the story of resilience and triumph, of immigration, of fragmentation, of grief, of, of, of a convoluted kind of winding, sometimes unforgiving road, but ultimately rising. Yeah. What's the name of the album? Nar. Nar. And it means, uh, yeah, N-A-R. It means fire okay. in, in Arabic. It's also the title of one of my pieces. Okay. So... Out of the pieces that you've written recently for this album, mm-hmm. like which one's the most joyous? It's interesting. I think a couple. There's one called Voyage that's very playful and fun and just stylistically like more harmonic and more. It's very fun. It's a very fun tune. And then there's one that's, that's much more rhythmic and more Balkan sounding that's also very fun. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's one that's very poignant. It's it's the Beirut song. It's very intense, but beautiful, intense. Yeah. Okay. And, and then a couple other ones. Like on your other, your last album. Wahda, yeah. That's very exuberant. Yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh-huh, that's a good word for that. <laughs> no, it really is. Fine, let's it's... just call it that. <laughs> Because I was like, wow, because it starts and you're like, yeah, this is, and then it just gets more and more intense and more and more stuff's happening. 1,700 layers. It only took me two years to arrange and edit that thing. It started started out as a circle song. It started out as like a rhythmic circle song. I'm I'm very, very passionate about rhythms and I've studied rhythms from all over the world and I could play with permutations and cycles and rhythms and subdivisions all day. I have seven drums. It's just my happy place. Okay. Mathematical it, mind. <laughs> no, 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 I don't know. It's very interesting. I, I was always into dance and rhythm and that's my happy place in my body. It feels very safe to me. Uh-huh. And, and that started as a, as an improvisation. And then I was like, Oh, that's so cool. Let me see what happens if I throw in a little that, a little that. And then before I knew it, I had North Indian music and South Indian music, like Carnatic music. And then it had flamenco in it. Then it had Balkan music. Then it had Arabic rhythms. And it was all cycles of five and seven and 11 and mm-hmm. nine, fours, and not th- that they all meet up in different places. So you have all this kind of simultaneous tension and release happening. It was mixed by in a great studio in Spain and they did a great job. But even there were so many layers that you can't, you can't hear half of the stuff happening. It was just too much, but that's me right there. <laughs> I'm not 
My previous two records each have 40 musicians on them because it's I, when I get into things, I get very, very excited and then everything becomes this huge tapestry. So one of my main goals, and believe me, it was very demanding, took everything I had to just stick to it. Mm-hmm. But one of my goals with this record to just it was to strictly keep it a quintet record and just resist the urge to invite special guests and resist the urge to make have overdubs and, oh, but I hear a trumpet here. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> So it's strictly quintet, and the idea was to create all of those different textures and colors just with those five instruments. Yes, yes, I understand. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. The learning curve was steep, but 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 I feel like we've achieved that, and it was a great step for me to take and allow for that space and allow for each each voice to really shine and, and not, there's nothing wrong with the other way. It's just that I've done it a lot and I've done it enough and I do it in my choir and my pro- big productions. And, and it's been very rewarding for me to, 
learn how to do things more minim- minimalistically. It's not in my very overly sentimental and ex- exuberant nature. I'm a tad intense and dramatic in general. So <laughs> doing anything in a very kind of conservative, measured and minimalistic way is not my default. Yeah, uh, there's a focus thing. That's great because it does make you focus. Yes, and it can still be very poignant and very intense and very focalized. Mm -hmm. More space around it, more clear intent, less noise. It's been a great maturation process for me in my creative process. I'd like to be able to work with a a bigger group because because I always have done small groups. Smaller things, yeah. But I like that too because there's more space. Yeah, it takes all. I think it takes all kinds, and you learn from all of it and. Mm -hmm. I say this to my students and clients all the time. I had to learn that the hard way. I wish somebody had explained that to me. And I I had to go through so much trial and error myself until I figured that out. I think we all have a happy place in terms of things like a particular temperament, creative Mm -hmm. temperament, a particular set of variables that come easier to us. And I think that it's really important to identify what that is and that's Mm -hmm. going to look different for every single one of us so we identify what that is and then we center and ground ourselves there but we commit to stretch outside of that so we have more tools so we have more courage so we are expand our field of vision Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that there's so much standardized some so much of a standardized approach in art and improvisation and music and a lot of things that we're all made to feel inadequate when we don't fit particular criteria and when we're not very good at one thing that maybe many people are good at we are made to feel extremely alienated for not being able to do that one thing and we as a result we feel like we have failed a lot of people quit i almost did because nobody brings to our attention that okay maybe this is not what comes the easiest to you but look over here because there's something here that you can do that nobody else can do and so if we stay just in that place of what comes easy to us all the time, I believe that we run into the danger of becoming complacent. So there's, Mm -hmm. so our growth is stunted. If we are too much, if we veer to the other side too much and we're constantly beating ourselves up and banging our heads against the wall because we're trying to do something that is hard for us and we forget to get nourishment in our center, we're going to be anxious and, it's unyielding. Mm-hmm. I think the creative process is a dance and, and there's a sweet spot in between where you never forget what, and then you create like a secure type of attachment to that. Yeah. And then you venture away from it in, in increments. Yes. Just, yes. To, just to keep growing. There's um, definitely something that I think I realized I had a, I was on tour. It was in high school. It was a like a hundred piece orchestra and like a sixty voice choir or something that I was in. And we it was Musical Youth International was the name of the group. Mm-hmm. So we were in Mexico. We were in the Bahamas. We were in D.C. We had all these high profile gigs. We were like on Mexican television and stuff like that. And we did this gig, and it was at this beautiful church, and it was like. I don't know, a thousand people in the audience and it was like a free concert for them. But so we were playing, we were doing the Vivaldi Gloria. I had two arias to sing and I got up there. The conductor gave me this look and he threw this energy at me that was so fierce. It literally hit me in the chest and I jumped 
and scared the bejesus out of me. And then I stood there frozen for two arias. Didn't sing a word. Had my book. I couldn't see. I had never been scared that way before. But he threw energy at me. I could feel it. Yeah, yeah, and then and so I was devastated because I just couldn't bring it to. I I kept. I looked at. The, I couldn't find it. I I hear you. And yeah. and so for two whole arias, the orchestra just played, and oh. and I was like all. And I kept thinking, man, you could have. You just could have had a piano player play the song for me, and then I would have come in. All you had to do is have somebody play the line, or have the violin player play the line. To, to, he didn't do he gave me nothing but and then afterwards he yelled at me for a good 45 minutes and never let me try again but this is the ex- example of somebody who's not there to yeah. hold but it was so it was one of those things that you made me look bad and i'm like what do you mean i'm the one that was singing or not singing i looked bad you didn't look bad but it was one of those things that that could have totally shattered me but then I came back the next year for my senior year and I had the lead in the school play or one of the leads in the musical. It wasn't a really big part, but I had a solo to sing and I was terrified I was going to freeze again. And the piano player just said, eh, everybody has one of those. Don't let it break you. And it was cool. And I did it and I kept going. But I learned at that point that no matter how devastating it is, that's not going to make or break your career. It's just one moment in time. Exactly. It doesn't matter. And then I think about what happened to Beyonce when she fell off. Yes. Or fell down or get to start over in the middle of the Grammys or, but it's all your wiring and what your conditioning, because for some of us who were punished early on for failing, mm-hmm. then when things like that happen, they, they are unmanageable because your wiring it will tell you that you're going to fail. And then it's like a self-fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. When you when you have been conditioned to think that it's not a big deal, you're much more resilient, and you take the hit, and then you sh- you show back up. Yeah. So a lot of my, a lot of my work in, with trauma and healing, and uh, the work that I'm hoping to put out in the world uh, on a bigger scale soon is is around how do you go from being wired one way to rewiring your brain a different way. Mm-hmm. So that it's building a bridge between being traumatized and being fully operational. Because it's something that's not addressed a lot in mainstream culture. There's a lot of peak performance work as in you grow up a certain way, you're conditioned, you're already prone to excel in particular ways. Let's say you're you're a virtuosic musician and you're discovered at the age of five and you do what you need to do and you have everything in place already. And then there's a world of the more severely affected population where I think that the the narrative around that population, in my experience, is always for a traumatized person, it's good enough. Yeah. In other words, the expectation is different. And to my sense, it's a form of discrimination because it perpetuates the gap. This is why the world of mental illness and mental health and all the labeling is, I find it extremely dangerous and Mm -hmm. very destructive because when you label a person with a condition they then believe they have, then it becomes part of your identity, part of your narrative, and then you can't get out of it. And so... It's been a very big commitment on my part, a very big passion 
of, of work, you know, of creating that bridge between, yes, the brain of somebody who went through very extreme, per, very extreme experiences at a young age is never going to be the, the same as a brain that didn't. But it, it doesn't have to be a compromising factor. It's always going to be, some things are always going to be more difficult, but there are openings there that can, with the right variables and the right intention and the right support system that could create resilience, that will in turn create brilliance at unfathomable levels. Mm -hmm. So how do we bridge that gap? And what are the tools that we need so that a person who has been conditioned to believe that they cannot do more, I was one of them. And in trauma, it's very, it's a very real thing. It's called learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. You believe, you generally believe with every fiber of your being that you have no access to that place. You have no access to your body. You have no access to your voice. You have no access to standing your ground. Mm -hmm. You have no access to joy. So how do you take that particular kind of configuration? Right. And how do you bridge that gap so that those same variables and those same parts of that same person are rearranged to create possibility for unbridled joy? Mm -hmm. and peak performance and fulfillment and reward and unburdened, unencumbered, joyous living. It, that has been, that was what I was able to achieve for myself. It took more than 40 years. But now that I know, my work has been articulating that in a way that can scale so that people who are stuck in war zones, people who are trapped inside their, who are trapped with their ghosts, who are trapped inside their bodies with zero access to their bodies because of abuse and violence and just unspeakable experiences, mm. know that it's possible because I had to walk the walk. I didn't learn this in a book. Okay, yeah. That's my vision for the next decade of my life is going to be very much, hopefully, bringing that work to the world. That's admirable because you have to dive so deep to do that. So that in and of itself is terrifying to me and everybody else in the world is to go that deep and stay there until you learn. What? At some point you understand that until you do, it's never going to go anywhere except mm -hmm. stay in you and govern your choices for you. So until you've uncovered those darkest places in yourself and and took a hard look at them and felt the terror and cried the tears it's not gonna melt it's not gonna you can't wish it away it's gonna stay in there until you melt it by bringing it into the light true looking at it and working with it until there is no more reason for it to be mm -hmm. yeah not every that's i agree that that's a big commitment and a lot of people it's more convenient i think for a lot of people to just not go there and for me again perhaps because of the nature of the, how extreme the experiences i was subjected to were it was never an option because they were very loud and very destructive demons it's an ongoing journey yes ma'am um, it looks like you've you got way up the mountaintop here so that's good i'm 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 alive i'm breathing i'm grateful 
I'm healthy. That's that's up high enough for me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, you're in a place where the, you can still smile yes. um, and feel that joy. So that's a good thing. Because um, yes, especially right now with everybody's in a depressive kind of realm, there's some people are emerging. Some people are like, I don't know what the heck to do. It's a struggle. It's mm-hmm. not. I Again, I was just I was thinking about that this week. It's been much harder for me the past this winter in the past couple of months to recenter myself in a place of kind of gratitude and joy. It's harder work because there's something very dense about the energy right now. There's something very dense about how the world is moving and what it's moving towards. And there's something very dense about the collective grief. Yeah. Maybe waves and waves of that and mental health or lack thereof in terms of the devastating ripple effect of what we all went through this past year. Mm-hmm. We're all feeling it and I'm feeling it. I'm not exempt of that by any means. I'm just, I'm feeling it every day. It's harder for me to stay in a good space. But because I've trained myself and I've because I've been committed to it for so long, I'm able to catch myself before being responsible about it. Sure. As in letting it hurt me. And you've got the tools and you've got the music to help and you've got the rhythm to help and you've got other people to help. So for all those people listening, find that space and (laughs) (laughs) find that space. You now you're online for counseling as well that you're doing. Yeah. Coaching. Yeah. It's, it's sessions. Yeah. It's sessions. And we do group workshops too. I have an ongoing workshop called, called Voices. I used to do it you know, in person a lot. I just travel the world doing that. And this whole past year, we've been doing it online. It's been so rewarding. It's incredible what we can do when we set our minds to it. And so that's a recurring thing. And then and then I do one-on-ones. I do a lot of one-on-ones, actually. And the length of that varies depending on what everybody needs and what their end goals are. Mm-hmm. But we're also, it's deep work. And but it's really rewarding and it's it's beautiful. It just brings a lot of clarity to the person in terms of who they are, what they really want, as opposed to what they think they want or what they say they want. Yeah, always different things. <laughs> and, then, and then aligning those things with action steps that helps them that help them get there, and that depending on again what we're working with, but sometimes that also involves working with the body and working with some aspects of trauma or whatever's in the way and just dismantling that to create the possibility for something new to emerge. Okay. So it's really rewarding. I'm very, I feel very privileged when people trust me and, and come to me with that vulnerability and I take it very seriously. I believe it because you know what you're talking about and that's the key right there. You don't, it, I don't know. I could tell you horror stories about counselors, but <laughs> yes, yes, and for everything, you can't lead anyone into places you have not been. You just mm-hmm. can't. You can't. Yeah. So, where should people look for you online? Okay, here come the hats. My so my website is christiancram.com with all the the ramifications and the pages and the tabs and everything's in there. Facebook, there's my artist page, and then there's my personal page. And then Instagram, my Instagram is Christian Sings. And I'm on YouTube, SK Music. Okay. Reach out if I can do anything for anyone, or if you have any questions of any sort, I'm always happy to, to be there and to engage. Thank you, Christian, Thank you. so yeah. much.
Thank you. It was you. so lovely to see you again. I can't believe Thank it's you. been so long. I know. It's been like it's been so long. I know we see each other vaguely here and there on Facebook, but this was so lovely. And I really appreciate you reaching out to me with this. Oh. Can I I'm gonna take a screenshot? Can I post a story with sure. a screenshot? I, Just, yeah, my hair looks good enough. <laughs> yeah. <I have> filters. <laughs> okay, beautiful. Okay, fantastic. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Bend, Michigan, or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed in the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artists. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.